Chapter Number One of the Book of All Power. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Tomlinson. The Book of All Power by Edgar Wallace. Chapter One Introducing Malcolm Hay. If a man is not eager for adventure at the age of twenty-two, the enticement of romantic possibilities will never come to him. The chairman of the Ukraine Oil Company looked with a little amusement at the young man who sat on the edge of a chair by the chairman's desk, and noted how the eye of the youth had kindled at every fresh discouragement which the chairman had put forward enthusiasm reflected the elder man was one of the qualities which were most desirable in the man who was to accept the position which malcolm hay was at that moment considering russia is a strange country said mr tremaine it is one of the mystery places of the world you hear fellows coming back from china who tell you amazing stories of the idiosyncrasies of the chink but I can tell you from my own personal observations that the Chinaman is an open book in words of one syllable compared with the average Russian peasant. By the way, you speak Russian, I understand. Hay nodded. Oh, yes, sir, he said. I've been talking Russian ever since I was sixteen, and I speak both the dialects. Good nodded mr tremaine now all that remains for you to do is to think both dialects i was in southern russia attending to our worlds for twenty years in fact long before our worlds came into being and i can honestly say that though i am not by any means an unintelligent man i know just as little about the russian today as i did when i went there he's the most elusive creature you think you know him two days after you have met him Two days later you find that you have changed all your opinions about him, and by the end of the first year, if you have kept a careful note of your observations and impressions in a diary, you will discover that you have 365 different views, unless it happens to be a leap year. What happens in a leap year? asked the innocent Hay. You have 366 views, said the solemn Mr. Tremaine. He struck a bell. "'We shan't want you to leave London for a week or two, he said, "'and in the meantime you had better study up our local special literature. "'We can give you particulars about the country, "'that part of the country in which the wells are situated, "'which you will not find in the guidebooks. "'There are also a few notable personages "'whom it will be advisable for you to study.' "'I know most of them,' said the youth, with easy confidence. "'As a matter of fact, I got the British consul to send me a local directory and swatted it.' Mr. Tremaine concealed a smile. "'And what did the local directory say about Israel Kensky?' he asked innocently. "'Israel Kensky?' said the puzzled youth. "'I don't remember that name.' "'It is the only name worth remembering,' said the other dryly. And, by the way, you'll be able to study him in a strange environment, for he is in London at this moment. A clerk had answered the bell and stood waiting in the doorway. 
"'Get Mr. Hay those books and pamphlets I spoke to you about,' said Tremaine. "'And by the way, when did M. Kensky arrive?' "'Today,' said the clerk. Tremaine nodded. "'In fact,' he said, "'London this week will be filled with people whose names are not in your precious directory, and all of whom you should know. The Yaroslavs are paying a sort of state visit.' "'The Yaroslavs?' repeated Hay. "'Oh, of course. "'The Grand Duke and his daughter,' added Mr. Tremaine. "'Well,' smiled the young man, "'I'm not likely to meet the Grand Duke or the Grand Duchess. "'I understand the royal family of Russia is a little exclusive.' "'Everything is likely in Russia,' said the optimistic Mr. Tremaine. "'If you come back in a few years' time "'and tell me that you've been appointed an admiral,' in the Russian navy, or that you've married the Grand Duchess Irene Yaroslav, I shall not for one moment disbelieve you. At the same time, if you come back from Russia without your ears, the same having been cut off by your peasant neighbours, to propitiate the ghost of a martyr who died six hundred years ago, I shall not be surprised either. That is the country you're going to, and I envy you. "'I'm a little surprised at myself,' admitted Malcolm. "'It seems almost incredible. "'Of course, sir, I have a lot to learn, "'and I'm not placing too much reliance upon my degree.' "'Your science degree,' said Tremaine, "'it may be useful, but a divinity degree would have been better.' "'A divinity degree?' Tremaine nodded. It is religion you want in Russia, and especially local religion. You'll have to do a mighty lot of adapting when you're out there, hey? And I don't think you could do better than get acquainted with the local saints. You'll find that the birth or death of four or five of them are celebrated every week, and that your workmen will take a day's holiday for each commemoration. If you're not pretty smart, they'll whip in a few saints who have no existence, and you'll get no work done at all. That will do. He ended the interview with a jerk of his head, and as the young man got to his feet to go, added, Come back again tomorrow. I think you ought to see Kensky. Who is he? asked Hay courteously. A local magnate. In a sense he is, and in a sense he's not, said the careful Mr. Tremaine. He's a big man locally, and from a business point of view... I suppose he is a magnate. However, you'll be able to judge for yourself. Malcolm Hay went out into the teeming streets of London, walking on air. It was his first appointment. He was earning money, and it seemed rather like a high-class dream. In Mayfair, Fair there are many little side streets, composed of shabby houses, covered with discoloured stucco, made all the more desolate and gloomy in appearance by the long and narrow strip of garden which runs out to the street. In one of these, devoted to the business of a boarding-house, an old man sat at a portable bench, under the one electric light which the economical landlady had allowed him. The room was furnished in a typically boarding-house style. But both the worker at the bench and the woman who sat by the table her chin on her palms watching him, seemed unaffected by the poverty of their surroundings. The man was thin and bent, of back. As he crouched over the bench, working with the fine tools, 
and what was evidently intended to be the leather cover of a book, his face lay in the shadow, and only one end of his straggling white beard betrayed his age. Presently he looked up at the woman and revealed himself as a hawk-nosed man of sixty. His face was emaciated and seamed, and his dark eyes shone brightly. His companion was a woman of twenty-four, obviously of the Jewish type, as was the old man. What good looks she possessed were marred by the sneer on her lips. "'If these English people see you at work,' she said presently, "'they will think you are some poor man, little father.' Israel Kensky did not stop his work. "'What book are you binding?' she asked after a while. "'Is it the Talmud which Levi Levisky gave you?' The old man did not answer, and a dark frown gathered on the woman's heavy face. You might not guess that they were father and daughter, yet such was the case. But between Sophia Kensky and her father there was neither communion of spirit nor friendship. It was amazing that she should accompany him as she did wherever he went, or that he should be content to have her as his companion. The gossips of Kiev had it that neither would trust the other out of sight, and it may be that there was something in this, though a stronger motive might be suspected in so far as Sophia's actions were concerned. Presently the old man put down his tools, blinked, and pushed back his chair. It is a design for a great book, he said, and chuckled hoarsely. A book with steel covers and wonderful pages. He smiled contemptuously. The book of all power, he said. Little father, there are times when I think you are mad. For how can you know the secrets which are denied to others? And you who write so badly, how can you fill a great book with your writings? The book of all power, repeated the man, and the smile on the woman's face grew broader. A wonderful book, she scoffed filled with magic and mystery and spells do you wonder that we of kiev suspect you we of kiev he repeated mockingly and she nodded we of kiev she said so you are with the rabble sophia he lifted one shoulder in a contemptuous little gesture you are also of the rabble israel kensky she said do you take your dinner at the Grand Duke's palace? He was gathering together the tools on the table and methodically fitting each graver into a big leather purse. The Grand Duke does not stone me in the street, nor set fire to my houses, he said. Nor the Grand Duchess, said the girl meaningly, and he looked down at her from under his lowered brows. The Grand Duchess is beyond the understanding of such as you, he said harshly, and the woman laughed. There will come a day when she will be on her knees to me, she said prophetically, and she got up from the table with a heavy yawn. That I promised myself, and with this promise I put myself to sleep every night. She went on, and she spoke without heat. I see her sweeping my floors and eating the bread I throw to her. Israel Kensky had heard all this before, and did not even smile. 
You are an evil woman, Sophia, he said. God knows how such a one could be a daughter of mine. What has the Grand Duchess done to you that you should harbour such venom? I hate her because she is, said the woman evenly. I hate her not for the harm she has done me, but for the proud smile she gives to her slaves. I hate her because she is high and I am low, and because all the time she is marking the difference between us. You are a fool, said Israel Kensky as he left the room. Perhaps I am, said the woman, his daughter. Are you going to bed now? He turned in the doorway. I am going to my room. I shall not come down again, he said. Then I will sleep, she yawned prodigiously. I hate this town. Why do you come, he asked. I did not want you. I came because you did not want me, said Sophia Kensky. Israel went to his room, closed the door and locked it. He listened and presently he heard the sound of his daughter's door close also and heard the snap of the key as it turned. But it was a double snap and he knew that the sound was intended for him and that the second click was the unlocking of the door. She had locked and unlocked it in one motion. He waited, sitting in an armchair before a small fire, for ten minutes, and then, rising, crossed the room softly and switched out the light. There was a transom above the door so that anybody in the passage outside could tell whether his light was on or off. Then he resumed his seat, spreading his veined hands to the fire, and listened. He waited another quarter of an hour before he heard a soft creak and the sound of breathing outside the door. Somebody was standing there listening. The old man kept his eyes fixed on the fire, but his senses were alive to every sound. Again he heard the creaking, this time louder. A jerry-built house in Maida Vale does not offer the best assistance to the furtive business in which Sophia Kensky was engaged. Another creak, this time farther away and repeated at intervals, told him that she was going down the stairs. He walked to the window and gently pulled up the blind, taking his station so that he could command a view of the narrow strip of garden. Presently his vigil was rewarded. He saw her dark figure walk along the flag pavement, open the gate and disappear into the darkened street. Israel Kensky went back to his chair, stirred the fire and settled down to a long wait his lined face grave and anxious. The woman had turned to the right and had walked swiftly to the end of the street. The name of that street, or its pronunciation, were beyond her. She neither spoke English, nor was she acquainted with the topography of the district in which she found herself. She slowed her pace as she reached the main road, and a man came out of the shadows to meet her. "'Is it you, little mother?' he asked in Russian. Thank God you're here. Who is this? asked Sophia breathlessly. Boris Yakov, said the other. I have been waiting for an hour, and it is very cold. I could not get away before, she said as she fell in beside him. The old man was working with his foolery, and it was impossible to get him to go to bed. Once or twice I yawned, and he took no notice. Why has he come to London? asked her companion. It must be something important to bring him away from his money-bags. To this the woman made no reply. Presently she asked, Do we walk? 
Is there no drosky or little carriage? Have patience, have patience, grinned the man good-humouredly. Here in London we do things in grand style. We have an auto-car for you, but it was not wise to bring it so close to your house, little mother. The old man... Oh, finish with the old man, she said impatiently. Do not forget that I am with him all the day. The antipathy between father and daughter was so well known that the man made no apology for discussing the relationship with that frankness which is the characteristic of the Russian peasant. Nor did Sophia Kensky resent the questions of a stranger, nor hesitate to unburden herself of her grievances. The autocar proved to be a very commonplace taxicab, though a vehicle of some luxury to Yakov. They say he practices magic, said that garrulous man, as the taxi got on its way. Also that he bewitches you. That is a lie, said the woman, indifferently. He frightens me sometimes, but that is because I have here, she tapped her forehead, a memory which is not a memory. I seem to remember something just at the end of a thread, and I reach for it, and lo, it is gone. That is magic, said Yakov gravely. Evidently he practices his spells upon you. Tell me, Sofia Kensky, is it true that you Jews use the blood of Christian children for your beastly ceremonies? The woman laughed. What sort of man are you that you believe such things? She asked contemptuously. I thought all the comrades in London were educated. Yakov made a little clicking noise with his mouth to betray his annoyance and well he might resent this reflection upon his education, for he held a university degree and had translated six revolutionary Russian novels into English and French. This he explained with some detail, and the girl listened with little interest. She was not surprised that an educated man should believe the fable of human sacrifices, which had gained a certain currency in Russia only it seemed to her just a little inexplicable. The cab turned out of the semi-obscurity of the side street into a brilliantly lighted thoroughfare and bowled down a broad and busy road. A drizzle of rain was falling and blurred the glass, but even had the windows been open, she could not have identified her whereabouts. "'To what place are you taking me?' she asked. "'Where is the meeting?' Yakov lowered his voice to a husky whisper. It is the cafe of the Silver Lion, in a place called Soho, he said. Here we meet from day to day and dream of a free Russia. We also play Bagatelle. He gave the English name for the latter. It is a club and a restaurant. Tonight it is necessary that you should be here, Sophia Kensky, because of the great happenings which must follow. She was silent for a while, then she asked whether it was safe, and he laughed. Safe, he scoffed. There are no secret police in London. This is a free country, where one may do as one wishes. No, no, Sophia Kensky, be not afraid. I am not afraid, she answered. But tell me, Yakov, what is this great meeting about? You shall learn, you shall learn, little sister, said Yakov importantly. He might have added that he also was to learn, for as yet he was in ignorance. They drove into a labyrinth of narrow streets and stopped suddenly before a doorway. 
There was no sign of a restaurant, and Yakov explained, before he got out of the cab, that this was the back entrance of the Silver Lion, and that most of the brethren who used the club also used this back door. He dismissed the cab and pressed the bell in the lintel of the door. Presently it was opened and they passed in unchallenged. They were in a small hallway lighted with a gas jet. There was a stairway leading to the upper part of the premises and a narrower stairway also lighted by gas at the foot leading to the cellar and it was down the latter that Yakov moved, followed by the girl. They were now in another passage, whitewashed and very orderly. A gas jet lit this also and at one end the girl saw a plain wooden door. To this Yakov advanced and knocked. A small wicket set in the panel was pushed aside, and after a brief scrutiny by the door's custodian, it was opened and the two entered without further parley. End of chapter 1 Recording by Peter Tomlinson